We are live. Hello and greetings everyone. Welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on Air. I'm your host for this Hangout. I'm Christina Cantrell. I work for the National Writing Project. It's a great honor to work for the National Writing Project. And I'm logging in here from my office in Philadelphia. Um, this Hangout today connects to a larger project that we're doing here at Educator Innovator called Letters to the Next President 2.0. So Letters to the Next President 2.0 is an initiative that empowers and connects young people 13 to 18 so that they can publish a letter to the next president and voice their opinions and ideas on issues that matter most to them. Um, if you check out our website at letterstopresident.org, that's letters number two, president.org, what you'll find there are a set of uh, resources and opportunities as well as a bigger range of partners who are coming together to, um, to provide um, lots of resources and, uh, and opportunities like webinars like this um, to think about how the learning and the teaching about how to get ready to write a letter to the next president and work with youth um, to work on these letters. Um, that same website in a couple of weeks is going to turn into a youth publishing site where youth can, um, where teachers can sign up their schools, organizations can sign up their groups of youth, and then youth can get into the site and um, post letters um, that, that um, talk about the issues and topics that matter most to them. So we're at, we're getting close to the point where that, that website will go live and um, youth can begin to publish. Um, the resources and opportunities will also continue to be available. So we encourage you to go to letterstopresident.org and sign up at that site so you can learn more. Um, and then here at Educator Innovator, we've been doing a series of webinars like this that relate to topics and issues that come up when we think about working with youth um, and um, really supporting them and digging into things that they care most about. And then to write a letter, and the letters can be text, multimedia, or whatever, using media in different ways to communicate what they care about um, to the next president as the audience for their um, for their work. Tonight we're going to focus particularly on the impact that the current political climate has, um, a climate that's often characterized by its divisiveness, and the impact that this has on the teaching of debate and media literacy, both inside and outside the classroom. So we really thank you for joining us here today, and we have a really special uh, array of guests with us, and we thank them for making and taking the time to be here. For those of you watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post your thoughts, your ideas, questions, comments via the Q&A feature um, that's embedded in the video player here at the Google Hangouts video player. Or you can just follow us on um, uh, Twitter and tweet questions and follow along using the hashtag 2NextPres. That's the number 2NextPres. Okay? Great. So why don't we get started? Um, I want to start by having everybody sort of introduce themselves. I was hoping that um, you know, uh, instead of having me awkwardly introduce everybody, I could sort of just go from my left to the right and have you all introduce your names, um, what you do, the work you do, and where you work, and then a little bit about what brings you to this conversation today. Like, why did you want to come here and talk about the teaching of debate and media literacy in today's climate? And that'll give us some entry points for the rest of the conversation. So, Steve, you're the first one on my left, so do you want to go first? Sure. Thank you so much, Christina. My name is Steve Chapon. I'm the Director of Community Engagement at the National Speech and Debate Association. Uh, we serve middle and high school students in the areas of competitive speech and debate and recognition for uh, accomplishments in articulating their views, thoughts, and expressing them in unique and creative ways. So I'm really excited to be here tonight. Uh, I'm really excited to be partnered with Letters to the Next President to give our students uh, another platform to express their ideas and their concerns about the future of society. We're turning this society over to the students. They're the ones who are going to be shepherding change and, and taking us uh, in a positive direction. And so as many outlets as we can provide them now to express themselves and to learn 
um, how to express themselves, I think is extremely important. And so our work with Namely uh, has been really powerful and I'm really excited about our partnership with them specifically and the work that we're doing with the uh, November elections, which fed into the letters to the next president as well. So it's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to the dialogue. Great, thank you, Steve. And Michelle, you are next, so it's a good segue. Great, thank you. Um, my name is Michelle Chula-Lipkin, and I'm the Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. We call ourselves Namely, as Steve just uh, referred to us. Um, we are a national membership organization, and our membership is an eclectic mix of media literacy scholars, researchers, teachers, um, from pre-K through 16. Um, we have a lot of nonprofit organizations, youth media organizations, pretty much if you're interested in media literacy and expanding media literacy in the US, um, you should be a part of our organization. Um, we are um, very busy these days. This is, uh, this political climate is, is very um, charged for media literacy education. Uh, education. We feel uh, like one positive of a polarized political climate is the fact that the importance of media literacy becomes that much clearer. <laughs> um, and so I'm passionate about this topic. I'm passionate about bringing uh, the topic of presidential campaigns and elections and all that goes with it into the classroom and beyond. So I'm just I'm happy to be here. Great, thank you, Michelle. The passion speaks through for sure. Jacqueline, do you want to go next? Sure. Can you hear me? Okay, so my name is Jacqueline Kahn Siegel. Uh, I head up the history department at Winston Prep, which is a uh, private special ed school in New York City. Um, I'm actually here because of Michelle. Uh, I am on the leadership for Namely, and uh, this past year, she, Steve, myself, and others worked on a curriculum to help teachers uh, work on debate skills and media literacy skills in the context of the uh, upcoming election. Um, I love teaching about politics, current events, and I think that the use of media, uh, especially social media, has definitely opened it up for my students to become more engaged uh, with the process. Great, thank you. And Cindy, you're next. Okay. Let's see. Okay, can you hear me? Good. Um, so I'm just delighted to be here for everybody. I'm the executive director of Project Look Sharp, um, which is a media literacy organization at Ithaca College. Um, my day job, I'm a professor in psychology and culture and communication. Um, and Project Look Sharp, we're just heading into our 20th year. We were founding members of Namely. I was a founding board member. And our job for, from our perspective is to support educators, primarily K through 12 teachers, to integrate media literacy and critical thinking into their teaching, no matter what they teach. Um, and our strongest interest is around social justice issues, political issues, and sustainability. Um, but we work with educators in lots of different realms. And we have free um, curriculum materials, um, more than a thousand media examples on our website that teachers can download and use in the classroom for free. So um, I'll post on the chat, our, our um, uh, URL, which is just projectlooksharp.org. Um, and one of our most popular curriculum kits is media constructions of presidential campaigns from 1800 to 2008. Um, who knew they had media in 2000 or in 1800? Um, and we've just gotten some grant funding from the Park Foundation to update that with the 2016 election. So we're going to be gathering uh, media documents and um, doing interactive decoding with uh, uh, kids and educators over the course of the next uh, few months. So really excited to be involved in this conversation. Great, thank you. Thank you for being here. Belinda? 
Hi everyone, um, I'm Belina Diebru and I'm a media literacy educator in Connecticut. Um, I feel like I wear a multitude of hats because I'm an academic, a researcher, and a teaching practitioner. I've done a lot of work um, with teaching future teachers as well as doing professional development work. My specialty area is working with middle and high school students and um, I was invited here also from by Michelle and I'm thank you for that. I'm also the Vice President of the National Telemedia Council, and I think from all of these pieces, um, I look at what's happening in the political stratosphere, and my concern is really that I don't think we're doing a very good job in schools with translating what we see in the outside world as debate into what is constructive debate and actually constructive dialogue. Um, and certainly, just watching the way the media has interacted in the last six months with their perception of a candidate versus the reality of a candidate and the ultimate reality of what we have as candidates has been um, really concerning and has really brought to mind why media literacy education is incredibly important in schools and that we really need to push for it more and more. Um, so I'm very happy to be a part of this discussion and certainly represent some of these ideas in this discussion tonight. Great, thank, thank you. And I, I want to pick up on that comment, this idea that like we kind of have an outside world debate, um, you know, this this on this debate that we're seeing within the election, and then sort of like that's really being different than a constructive debate that we might be talking about in classrooms or something. And maybe we could unpack a little bit about. So to go before we go back to that, maybe we can talk about what we see happening in this political climate right now. We had, we you know that was. We described that it's often characterized as um, divisive. Michelle talked about it being a charged media literacy environment. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit and unpack that a little bit and what we're seeing. So then we can think about like how is that different than what we are trying to construct and support youth in doing in their classrooms. Michelle, do you want to pick up on that? Sure. Um I think what I find most interested in, and I'm almost, it's almost like more of a follow-up question for uh, Cindy and Jacqueline and Belina uh, and the folks that are with students like Steve, uh, about what I see um, happening a lot. And, and as Belina mentioned, social media really has changed the game, right? And we, we changed the game in previous elections, um, in the most recent elections. But in this one, it it seems that it's it's really a driving force and it could be because of how the candidates themselves are using social media um, but what I find happening um, and I'm not a researcher so this is somewhat anecdotal is the idea that there is this lack of constructive debate that what I see happening on social media is either um, real all in all like fighting versus there's also this this tendency to just want to follow the people that you agree with, right? So there's a lot of that happening at social media. And then what happens is someone weighs in with a different point of view. And what is happening is the conversation is stopping. That um, So either it ex escalates into an argument or literally no one's getting involved anymore. And I think there's a real danger in that um, lack of communication, that we've lost this ability to disagree with each other and have a constructive debate. And I think that is very difficult then, if this is happening on social media, if our students are seeing it, then to bring into the classroom these concepts of debate and inquiry and habits of communication that are effective, it's a real, um, their real world, what they're seeing, and they're seeing it with adults, they're seeing it with presidential candidates, um, this lack of communication skills, like I think it's a, it's a very difficult time for teachers. That's at least my perception of it. So I would love to hear what others have to think, have to say. Yeah, so I'd like to weigh in on that because I think that the concept of literacy in today's world really means being able to um, communicate effectively through a variety of different modes, but also be able to drill down and make sense out of um, comments, facts that people claim, um, and to be able to answer the question, is that really true, what someone said? Because social media in particular 
is so limited in terms of the amount of space, the amount of time that someone can communicate a point of view, and then it just jumps to the next person. So trying to make sense and helping our, our students, kindergarten through college, um, understand how and why they should, in fact, fact-check what's being claimed and recognize whether, whether it's by somebody on the side you're against or the side you're on, to what extent is there evidence supporting their view? And, and how can you find that out? So for me, the whole idea of, of literacy and epistemology, how do we know what we know, is more important than ever. And, and for us to be able to find ways to help our students develop those critical thinking and speech and debate skills of being able to hold your own in a conversation is just critical. Uh, I just wanted to add on to that. Um, one of the things that I do with my students, especially high school, is we talk about media bias. So I'll give them without the um, the title, well not the title, without the organization it came from, giving them different articles, having them understand the article, and then telling me is there a bias in this or is there not a bias in this. So. I try to get uh, articles from very different places. It's really interesting. Some of the times this, the students can definitely get the bias. Sometimes they, they don't. Um, but I think that with our media climate now, it, it makes the campaigns, um, even though they can be what people post scary and things are always changing, so there's tons of uh, information, it makes it more accessible for the students because they're on social media. Um, I had, in 2012, I had students following um, both sides, either Twitter or Facebook, and uh, it was really interesting, the information that was being posted, and then we had to go through and see, is this information actually accurate? Um, and, I, and just recently, I mean, all the memes that they're creating, they're posted. You can't, you can't get away from the political climate. So I think that using social media, even using these memes to deconstruct like what information is being presented, is it accurate, and then what is the bias. So I, I wanted to follow up on some of the things that you were saying because I think the hardest thing to teach students is bias. What is it exactly? Um, and how does that translate when you hear a version of your um, parents' political beliefs and it translates to your version because you live in the same household? Um, and how do you distinguish the differences between that? And I think what's been, I think, more concerning even for me is as I go even further into that is that we have our media environment right now whose own bias comes through very readily so much so that it's become very hard for I think the viewer to distinguish the difference between the bias that's being presented from whatever you know affiliation whatever affiliate you listen to um, whether it's CNN, Fox or whatever it may be so that you can't you find it much more difficult today to filter through all that and then see the truth or whatever the truth should be or you know the historical truth at least um, which actually you know this is uh, Steve I, I know is going to jump in after me but you know from a history perspective I think what is daunting about some of this is that I feel like some of the reasons why this is happening right now is because we aren't really focused on teaching history anymore in schools and so the lack of teaching history or the perception that history isn't so important has lent itself to sort of this breakdown of what we should be able to do with students and providing them with a critical a critical idea and some critical thinking that goes along with the mediated environments that they're involved in. Yeah, and I, I think everything that's been said highlights the mandate that we should all feel um, to really go into the classrooms and support teachers if we're not in the classroom so that they can teach these skills to the students um, when Michelle said that conversations are stopping, um, it's absolutely true. There are people who do not know how to engage into these conversations. So we cannot let social media be the only source of information for students. We must use social media as a way, as Jacqueline said, to deconstruct things and use our platform to give them a voice so that they are communicating in more than 140 characters or in more than just a a photo. So our, we, we have a mandate, we have an obligation as people who work in the field of education to either in our spaces or 
with our platform give tools to those who have spaces to help our students so that they learn how to have these conversations. There are too many older generations that don't know how to have the conversations anymore. And if we're not equipping the students, then the models that they see at home or online will not equip them to make the progress that we need. And, and, I, and I would say the other thing is, I think that there's a difference between bias and propaganda. And it is amazing to me how effective the propaganda has been on both sides in politics to convince people that regardless of what you show them from a news source that is reputable and has limited bias or no bias or the research that you show them, they won't believe you and they can't even engage you. So I think these are all really important points and, and give us kind of an obligation to move forward. That's great. And I, I mean, what I hear too and what you're saying, Steve, and I heard it in other people's, is that this is both a challenge for youth today, but also the adults that, um, the adults in the mix. I mean, um, thinking about the ways that, like, new social media, like Snapchat, for instance, was used by a lot of politicians and news outlets and everything this election, and many adults aren't necessarily using Snapchat. You know, the, the forums where we're getting our news really are changing, too. Um, maybe we could talk about some examples of things that you've seen that have been effective to really support effective dialogue. Um, now that we've sort of unpacked a little bit of what's so challenging about it, are there things that you've done that you feel like have been really supportive? Are you seeing little nuggets that you're trying to sort of develop further? What are some of the key questions that come up when you try to teach this work and work with youth today and or with colleagues? Because I think we really do have a lot of work to, as adults ourselves, to think about like how do we address this work in a really rapidly changing environment. Does anybody want to? Sure. So I think one of the great things about speech and debate is that it requires students to address both sides of the issue. So if you go to a debate tournament and there's a topic about a social issue that's controversial, um, you're not allowed to just say, I'm only going to say things that are for that topic or I'm only going to say things that are against that topic. So we make you really research both sides of an issue and come up with positions that you have to advocate for even if it goes against your personal beliefs. And I think that's really empowering for students, um, for them to, even if they fundamentally disagree with something, to be able to find truth in the other side. And I think it's a really powerful revelation when they say, wow, this is true, but despite the fact that it's true, I'm even more um, confident in my beliefs because I think these other things outweigh the truth that these people have. And when you can find the truth in what other people see, um, I think it makes the conversation much different. When you don't believe that tr there's truth in what they say, or you can't seem to find the truth in what they say, then there's no room for dialogue. But at the point that you learn to see both sides of an issue and you learn how to find research on both sides of an issue, then you can see that truth. And whether you agree with that truth ultimately or not, you know that it's there and it changes the dynamic of the conversation. That's right. And I think that the whole area of speech and debate is such a powerful context for talking about respectful dialogue because in classic speech and debate, um, that's the context in which the conversation occurs, is respecting your opponent and being in the realm of, of um, not name-calling and, um, and not just holding to your own point of view no matter what. So using media literacy approaches to, to help students and adults look at the debates that are going on um, during this current presidential campaign, both the formal debates, which I'm imagining we're going to get to, um, uh, Clinton versus Trump, which will be highly interesting, but also debates that are played out in news media um, and by pundits, um, and having students take those apart a little bit, asking students what do they hear, what's the evidence supporting the claims that different people are making. When did somebody um, respond to the question being asked and when did they not? And 
how does that affect um, how does that affect their argument, but also our understanding of the issues? I wonder um, about the fact that um, students today are living in a, a a culture in which it's very reactionary and a lot of um, judgment is being made uh, based on feelings as opposed to facts and I think that that's a major part of conversation in the media um, is much more about uh, less substantial facts and less substantial policy and more about um, things that some might say are insubstantial like whether we like a person or whether um, we, we think they did a good job or how they sounded and their tone of voice and the way they spelled something or whatever like all of these inconsequential things and so these students are kind of growing up in a culture that is constantly feeding them feelings and constantly feeding them reactions um, and so I feel what is so difficult sometimes is to teach them to think. So in, you know, we are reacting, but are we thinking? And those are two very different things and um, I think that that's one of the reasons I feel the skills that um, are within media literacy and debate need to st be taught at a very young age. They need to be, you know, started very young um, because these are skills that students will need at a younger and younger age. Um, but I do find that interesting how you, you know, and I don't really have an answer for it, but it's definitely an issue when you're living in a culture that is making a lot of decisions um, about which candidate they like as opposed to which candidate believes what they believe is right for the country or um, is aligned with their, uh, the things that they, they want to see happen in the country. It's just very interesting that this idea of, of reactionary has come uh, so such a huge issue like the presidential election I, I think that I'm even surprised with how emotional it's gotten um, and I, I I just I wonder what that means and I wonder what that means for classrooms come September when people are back in school well, uh, this past spring I talked about uh, the upcoming election because it's been in the news since the set last summer. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot, of the, a lot of the students already have clear-cut, you know, I love Bernie mm -hmm. at the time or um, I like Trump, whether they're serious or joking around. And there's, um, I have to look for the website, but there's a quiz you can take and it will align you with, with whichever candidate you more you know you support in certain areas. Um, so obviously, for my students, they didn't take the whole thing. I think I gave them ten questions, and like based on each question, it was do you strongly agree, agree doesn't matter, disagree strongly disagree. And it was really interesting for the people who are like I'm totally Hillary Clinton or I'm totally Donald Trump that they weren't totally in all the mm -hmm. categories. Um, so you can break it down that way, the students can actually see, oh wait a second, like I, I feel the same way about jobs as Clinton does, but I feel, you know, whatever it is. Um, but there's still so much of an emotional piece that even after they realized mm -hmm. that they were aligned with somebody different, they still supported the candidate, which I thought was really interesting because I think adults do that as well. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And Cindy, I wanted to have you jump in, yeah, because I know you have to leave early tonight. So yeah, so I do. This has been terrific, um, and uh, but I'm on vacation with my family, so they're here tugging me away. Um, I just wanted to say I, I loved what Belina said about um, history that we kind of don't teach history as much as um, as maybe would be very important to do so far. That I think um, sometimes it's very challenging to get people to critique or take apart um, what's going on right now and the candidates that they feel strongly about, pro or con, but teaching them the um, assessment skills and the, the um, decoding skills, looking at past presidential campaigns can, can really be a great way of getting them into the habit of 
taking apart different viewpoints and different statements that are being made. So um, the presidential campaigns kit that we have, one of the things that I learned when we put it together is how much what's going on today is not new. That there have been these kinds of really outrageous debates and one-sided um, uh, stand and, as Michelle said, emotional, um, emotionally driven arguments since the very beginning, since 1804 at least. Um, so being able to look at how these kinds of um, decisions and discrepancies and political choices have unfolded over the last 200 years or more um, and getting students to be able to articulate their um, perspectives um, and give evidence to support their points of view by looking at some of these older elections um, including what we don't see as old but our students today may see as old say the 1980s um, or the 1990s helping them to take those apart or 2000 when you know when the outcome was not even decided on election day really approaching that from a media literacy standpoint um, and and helping students articulate their understanding of what the issues were and and the techniques that were used on each side that can maybe then allow them to um, to come from a more powerful place when they're applying that now to today's um, election. So very excited to be engaged in this work. Thanks so much, Cindy, for joining us. Really appreciate it. And have um, and, and yeah, that's a great example and great food for thought for us to continue this and have a great vacation with your family. We'll share Project uh, Look Sharp um, on the website too. So thank you. Christina, I had a uh, question, if I could throw it in there. Um, sure. I'm very curious. Um, this, I've been a little bit obsessed with um, you know, the idea that as media literacy educators, you know, our, our role or our goal is to really teach students how, how to think, not what to think. Um, so, but I've been struggling with this. I've been struggling with this because of how um, polarized things are and that I do have my own personal beliefs on what I would like to see happen in the presidential election and I'm struggling with this idea that as educators um, as media literacy educators as speech and debate educators um, this idea that we're supposed to be apolitical that we're supposed to keep uh, into you know keep a a really neutral perspective when we're having these conversations in the classrooms and I'm struggling with that I totally be honest like my confession so I'm curious as to uh, with Belina and Jacqueline and Steve how how have you dealt with that and how important do you think it is to stay uh, neutral and to stay even though students are seeing the lack of neutrality how do you as a teacher, how important is it? And so I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. Um, uh, oh. <laughs> Go ahead, Jacqueline, and I'll jump in after. Okay, thanks. Um, I was going to say, I think it's extremely important. Um, I try to be neutral. I don't say anything. Um, I know a lot of the kids are like, oh, who are you going to vote for? And it's like, I'll tell you when you graduate, and there may be a ninth grade, so, you know, <laughs> they have some time. But I think it's, I think that, Students, especially those who aren't 100% sure, are going to follow things that people they like say or things that they hear. So a lot of a lot of students follow what their parents say without necessarily looking into more information. Um, mm -hmm. If I was going to go around the school and be like, I love John Kasich, you know, he's the best, um, I feel like I would be changing their view even though they might not yet have that view so I think that it's very important to to just stay um, sometimes I like to play devil's advocate if they're very much I'm a Bernie supporter I'll say oh well you know this this and this about Trump or this this and this about Bernie um, and I think that's really interesting because it gets them to think a little bit more about that candidate but I don't ever want to tell them um, who I support yeah, I actually I completely agree with you. I think this yeah. is one of those times when you do need to 
not voice your opinion at all. Mm -hmm. um, I also think one of the reasons why you definitely want to have that, now I'm going to take this sort of a, a chapter from David Considine who was at Appalachian State University. This is one of those opportunities where I think the student voice needs to be present in the classroom. And in order for that voice to exist, they can't feel that what they believe or what they perceive in their beliefs would be will be knocked down because it may not be what you believe or your perceptions. Um, I think one of the most important things that any teacher can do, especially when it comes with the media, is to give students a platform to ask questions because they do have a lot of questions and they have a lot of concerns. More than um, some of it comes out the way I think, as Jacqueline was expressing, that you know comes out as oh I like you know I definitely like this candidate versus that candidate, or, or it's it's easy to pick up the reactionary piece. And, and that's sort of touching back on a little bit of what Cindy was saying um, because it's out there and they're seeing it in the news media which should have less of a reactionary role but unfortunately has had the most reactionary role and then all of that comes back and gets reinterpreted into the classroom sometimes in the dialogue between the students themselves and the way they interact with each other so if this is a place if a school or in a classroom is to provide um, an opportunity to have debate, then you need to establish guidelines and you need to establish the opportunity for everyone's voice to be heard without the voice feeling like they are not represented and that their voice is not wanted or warranted. Um, and that's, that does take a lot more work, I think, on the part of the teacher. And yes, sometimes mm. it means that you sit there and you bite your tongue <laughs> even when you want to say things, but mm. I think, you know, Something else that Jacqueline said that I think is very important is that sometimes it's about redirecting the question. Sometimes you have to ask mm. them the, the big question or the question that may send them into a place from research or find out the better answer maybe um, or have them actually research what they believe to be true or not true. This is an opportunity. A classroom is an opportunity for learning and especially with the current debates and the way that our presidential election is going, it's important for them to have that place and let it grow within the classroom. Um, and I was thinking that the, the what Steve said earlier um, about also a space to look at the other person or the other opinions. So so maybe there's not, not even an opposite opinion, there are just other opinions. And to me, what struck me about that, I forget how you said it, Steve, but it was something about like, you know, finding the truth in that too and being able to hold on to more than one thing at the same time. I think is a really that strikes me as powerful also in this mix. And that, you know, asking students to also practice that or look at that or, or do some, do work with that, I guess. Um, but Michelle, I just wanted to come back to your question too because I think it also points to the communities of practice that we need together as adults and educators. You know, we need chances to talk to each other about this stuff, right? We need a chance to really connect as adults in this work both to think through like what are the implications and how do we support youth voice in class. I don't know if you guys have been thinking about that or have thoughts on that to bring to. Um, I know with my colleagues at the National Writing Project we've been using some opportunities lately like our spring meetings and stuff to really talk about this work because it is very difficult and challenging. So uh, I, I think that it's, it's about creating a safe environment in the classroom so that people feel like they can share their view. I think ultimately if we can get to a point where our vulnerabilities can come out in conversation, um, then the conversation can be the most productive. And so creating that environment for students is extremely difficult. Um, and it's, it's a balancing act and you have to be careful so that you don't pressure students or make students feel uncomfortable in your attempt to make everybody feel comfortable. But for their voice to be heard, there has to be a safe space for them to speak. There have to be clear ground rules so that people understand when somebody says something that you don't agree with, here's how we deal with that in a constructive manner um, and whatnot. And the other thing I would say is I agree with everything that was said in terms of the classroom setting if you're teaching a history class or an English class or a 
a, you know, a formalized class for credit, but I do think the dynamic changes when you're dealing with students in an extracurricular activity and when you're spending hours upon hours with them outside of the school day uh, as a coach, as a mentor, as an advisor, I do think that the, the dynamic changes. And so I do think it would be okay, in my mind, for those professionals who have those relationships with students in a different setting than a classroom environment to have different types of conversations with students about politics and what their views may be. Um, it's, it's tough. It's a balancing act, and I don't know where the line is. I don't know what the bright line is, but I do think that the relationship is different and the amount of time they spend together is different, and especially in speech and debate, when you're teaching the skills of argument, evaluating information, etc., um, I think it could be healthy if done appropriately and properly to share kind of personal viewpoints and how you arrived at the conclusion you did, but because you're teaching that finding truth um, in both sides, you can then balance it out by saying, but I completely understand people who put values here and why those things matter more to them and I can respect that decision. It's tough. It's not easy. It may not be for everybody, but I do think that there's a different context when you work with students after school in an extracurricular activity um, where there's not a grade or a credit on the line. And I do think that relationship is fundamentally different. But I do agree with everything that was said about an in-classroom situation. I was wondering um, just if we could spend a little time thinking about the spaces that we do create for student voice. Like, what are some of those spaces? Um, because it does seem like you, um, like in speech and debate, or that there's an aspect of performance or youth being able to create or make something or have their voice out there. Like, what are what are what are some ways that we've come up with that? Um, and what's the role of that of of youth having that opportunity. I know letters to the next president um, could be one of them that we would want to talk about, but there might be others too, like other ways that youth are able to like um, really uh, exercise kind of some of these skills that you're talking about and put their work out in the world and share it among each other. Oh, you're having trouble hearing me, it sounds like. Sorry about that. Oh. That's okay. It's just a little shaky. I was going to um, defer. I was being quiet because I wanted, again, to defer to those that are um, more within, you know, the classroom and the work that, you know, Jacqueline Arbelina has had done with students in the past. So I was going to defer to those folks on that one. All right, I, I could jump in. Um, so it's really interesting, the letters to the president um, in 2012, uh, before the actual election, I had my juniors and seniors write letters. Um, it was either to the current president, Obama, or to Mitt Romney, or to any politician that they wanted to. Um, they had to pick a, uh, a topic or a couple topics that they wanted to really talk about, include information. Um, it was very structured. Uh, Winston is all about teaching uh, and fostering independence in the academic setting. Um, so it was really working on executive functioning skills, so planning and follow through, working on um, understanding, comprehension, critical thinking, developing their writing. Um, but and, and also their research skills. Uh, and so this class, a few years ago now, um, they wrote letters, most of them wrote to Obama, some of them wrote to Mitt Romney, um, and they wrote physical letters, they sent them out, before they sent them out they uh, videoed themselves, and then what I did was I created a, a video that kind of clipped them all together. And I think that aside from working on academic skills, um, it really fine-tuned their thoughts and their opinions and putting them into the written word and then seeing that they were going to be um, shown because we showed at the history fair that year and um, I think it really made them feel more a part of the whole process um, 
I, there's some students that you're like, I don't care about politics. It's old white men. It doesn't matter. They don't care about me. And by the end of the year, you know, it got them to be thinking more like, how do these people affect my life on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and what can I say that perhaps could help them help me? Um, so I thought that was really interesting. So um, one of the things that we had done um, during the Romney-Obama campaign, um, it was at the point doing some work with um, another teacher at a middle school, and um, it was a media technology class, and we had said to the students, you're going to create an ad campaign for the person that you would vote for if you had the opportunity to vote for. Um, so we told them, you know, make sure you come in with whoever you're going to decide. They came in the next day with who they thought they were going to create the campaign and what we did was we flipped it. We said they had to do it for the opposite person that they thought they were going to vote for. And the reason why we did that in particular is so that they could see the other side of the issue. And with middle schools they were incredibly disgruntled, I, I, I will say. But at the same, by the same token, it gave them an opportunity to see the two candidates for the two candidates versus what they heard, what the media told them, what the messages were, even what they were hearing at home, so that they could see the possibilities of why people would consider voting for the other person. Um, and then they created the the actual campaign ads. Um, and some of them, you could tell by the, the campaign ad, it was either very terrible for the person that they ended up with, or um, it, it, changed, it changed their thinking, um, which was really interesting to see. They had a lot more questions at the end. Um, so that was just something that we did in particular with middle schools, but it gave them a chance to see more than one side of an issue, and we thought that was really important for them to do. Those are great examples. Thank you. Um, uh, Steve, do you have um, thought, like, I mean, obviously you guys are developing, you know, debate, but are there sort of ways that you um, think about this, like activities that you do that are really supportive of starting to construct towards sort of a competitive debate, but sort of that we could think about in the context of maybe our classrooms or, um, in, uh, not to put you on the spot, but sorry. <laughs> That's fine. I was going to say that the, the work that uh, we did with Namely, um, Jacqueline was involved in that, uh, creates a list of kind of standards for speech and debate, standards for media literacy, and then goes over uh, activities that you could do in the classroom uh, that reinforce those skills. And so it's part of the, for us, it's part of our Voices of the Future um, work that we've been doing as a, a lead up to the uh, election, but it was really awesome to work with people from other fields of education to come up with this because it's amazing how many things history and English teachers are doing that reinforce speech and debate skills because they're just important skills for kids. And so to collaborate together to learn ideas that they had that we hadn't thought of, to see things that we had been doing in a different way, presented in a different way, was really powerful. And I think that those activities would be awesome for any teacher, especially social sciences or English teachers, to look at um, and think about how they could integrate those into their classroom because there's ways for them to do group work, individual work, projects, presentations, um, analyzing commercials, um, all sorts of things that can be embedded into the curriculum that aren't about competition. Um, but any time that we get kids speaking in front of groups of people, developing a thesis, defending that thesis, that leads to them developing a sense of confidence and working on a skill set that could then translate into a, a competitive environment if that's what it leads them to or if that's something they become interested in. That's awesome. I'm glad I put you on the spot. That was great. <laughs> um, I was also, just to say, and I'm not sure if anybody has any thoughts on this, but at the National Writing Project, we work with educators across um, disciplines and grade levels. Um, so there's a lot of our, I mean, actually, um, some examples came up already, and Michelle, you were saying this too, like working with little kids really early, starting to really like develop these practices at a young age, 
Um, and there's a lot of media, uh, there's a lot of reports right now on how young children are trying to decipher what they're hearing in the news. So, I mean, like, we're all sort of consumers of this stuff, and so starting to be able to be makers and start to create and, and think about it together is so important at any age. And then also, in our network, we have a bunch of people who work across disciplines. So science teachers, for instance, and there's lots about climate change and lots about um, other sort of topics in the news. Um, uh, I was thinking about, like, bioethics, you know, for example, or, like, how, how some of these, you know, the range of issues and the ways that these things could be connected across disciplines, too. Um, so that's really sort of an open question, and just if anybody has any thoughts on that or examples, um, and we've been trying to pull together some examples, too, on the Letters to the Next President website just to, just to help think across this because they're, they're these topics are so multidisciplinary. I guess I would just share that, um, you know, media literacy in its itself is multidisciplinary. Oh, yeah. So I think that we we really um, try to stress that, uh, certainly from a national perspective about expanding the practice, um, is that it doesn't matter you know, what class you're teaching, what subject matter, um, that media literacy can be a key component, and that idea that media literacy is, is a, a way to teach. It's not uh, a thing to teach. Um, and you know, even though there are schools that have a media literacy class and that can be effective, um, what we would, you know, like to see overall nationally is just a really a push for teachers uh, to, in any discipline, in any subject area, to get training in how to bring media literacy competencies to their classroom. So I think in the in the same way, and and speech and debate is is the same thing in a lot of ways. Is this idea that it is some it's a way to teach and and it, you can teach science that way you can teach social studies that way you can teach um, uh, ELA that way so um, you know whenever I think about that concept of multidiscipline uh, I always am thinking about well that's that's what media literacy is yeah and I'll piggyback on what Michelle is saying that I think that um, I look at it as teachable moments and I think in every class that you teach in whatever discipline there are teachable moments that come up, come up quite often and uh, certainly with the presidential election coming there has been many possible teachable moments that range from you know the questions when it comes to economics to um, you know truth versus fiction to most recently plagiarism which would work in very well in schools um, yeah. you know, certainly lots of discussions that I think exist that um, really fall very well within any subject area because they're real um, and I think just sort of even rounding back to something that Cindy had said about you know reality and and reactionary um, I think that this is brings it back into the classroom in the idea of how do you teach about reactionary moments if you don't have a media literacy consideration for the world um, and I kinda feel like in education the one thing that is lacking is that that media literacy lens because it isn't something that is prescribed through most teacher professional development or even um, coursework and that's why I feel it's so important and it's such a necessity it, because you do need it and you need it in every opportunity um, and you know let's push aside the presidential piece and look at everyday things that are going on and the questions that come up that students have that they do see through their social networks, through their mediated environments, through their own experiences with how they interact with each other, whether it's at the very you know, elementary level to the middle school level or high school, all of these pieces come together to make the next citizen of the world. So without that media literacy lens, that critical look at the world, it's concerning to think that we have students who will go out and not actually have that in their plethora or in their um, files for future use. I do think that um, one of the challenges is just the sheer volume of information, right? And and I think about the fact that there might have been a time where teachers could could teach about the presidential election. For example, they could teach about the debate, you know, between the candidates, and their focus can be on the debate. Um, but now there's 
there's the debate, but there's really that layer of, well, how did the media cover the debate? And what was the reaction to the t uh, debate? And what is trending from the debate? And what is twi on Twitter? And what is, uh, how is mainstream media covering it? So there is this other level that it's, it's, I find that I took two days off and I feel so behind on what happened at the debates the first two, I mean, at the uh, convention the first two nights. I feel like I'm catching up. I'm trying to read and, and watch and, and figure out where I should be at today. And that's two days I missed. So I, I think that that's challenging. And I think that I just want to kind of put a shout out to teachers. And, and their job is just, it's very difficult, you know, because you really have to be on top of things um, and be willing to be flexible in what comes up in the classroom about what happened the night before. And I just think a teacher's job is, is very, very difficult uh, to keep simply on top of. Great. Thank you, Michelle. And, but then the other layer of just, it's not only about what was... Breaking up a little bit, Michelle. So I might pick, I might try to pick up all uh, what you said about you know giving serious shout out to to educators who are doing this work in their classroom and um, sort of turn it over so everybody can have sort of a last word or sort of thoughts that they would like to pass on, um, you know, sort of even from their, your own planning and thinking or, oh, there you are, Michelle. Good. <laughs> so I was trying to uh, segue into sort of, yeah. Well, anyway, we all get to have our, our last word. So why don't we go around and sort of have the last word and maybe we can, um, you know, sort of I was trying to extend this idea of like a shout out to teachers who are doing this in their classroom this fall and um, thinking of us all sort of working together um, and sharing what we're doing and learning and how we're approaching it with each other so we can support each other in this work. Um, uh, does anybody want to sort of respond with sort of a last word or final thoughts for other educators who might be tackling this stuff coming up? I'll jump in um, just quickly and say that I think it's important to listen to all of the rhetoric um, and not just one voice. Um, my, my, I was just in the car with my sister and she was laughing because I kept flipping between CNN and Fox and NPR and political and um, it's one of those things that I feel like I have to listen to all sides so that I can get a fuller picture. And I don't think that we all have those opportunities, but I think in this political year, it's so important to hear all sides as much as possible, mm. when possible, because you will get all sides in the classroom. And I do think, like Michelle said, it's a definite shout out to teachers. They work really hard to maintain um, open dialogue within the classroom. And I think sometimes it gets harder when the rhetoric is so much harder out there in the world. So um, I wish them luck, too, with the new academic year. I just will end my, um, Steve, you can go. I'm talking too much. I was just going to say it's not easy. It's difficult. Having these conversations take a lot of work and, and require a great deal of patience. So kudos to everyone who's willing to have those conversations, facilitate those conversations, and um, don't give up. It will be hard but hopefully you'll find resources that are available to you and support you. And I just got to say, if you know a school that doesn't have a speech and debate team, uh, I can uh, help you try and get that going. So thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, I guess for myself, we, uh, we're definitely going to be following the election very closely this next school year at Winston. The history curriculum is going to be politics and government for the entire year. So our kids are definitely going to be taking uh, a closer look at the election, the process, um, government itself, and I'm really excited for things to come. And I just want to yeah, yeah, I just want to say that I think it's really important that all of us uh, that are listening, that are on this call, that are in the classroom, also practice being a role model in the conversation that is happening in social media and among you know friends and communities is is to really instill our own 
media literacy skills and our debate uh, skills into everyday conversation and try to be part of the education and solution and not, you know, part of uh, the rhetoric that causes problems. So be a role model as we go forward. Great. And thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for all of you being here. This is awesome. And um, I feel like we should come back to these conversations in a little, a few weeks go by and come back. So we'll talk about how we could maybe do that because I just think that it's like it's an ongoing thing. We should keep talking with each other and connecting. So I wanted to just remind people where we can connect um, right away. So at the hashtag 2NextPres is one place where we are encouraging people to share resources, ideas, pop out a question like, oh, how do you do X or Y or Z? Like, I'm really trying to work this through. Use that hashtag however you want. Say, like, I found this really cool thing. I think others will like it. Mark it up. So I think that's um, one place that I'd really encourage you to go. Letters to the Next President, or letters2president.org is um, the website about the that um, we're putting together a bunch of different resources and um, opportunities to continue these kind of conversations and um, uh, we would encourage you to sign up for that. You'll get uh, uh, bulletins um, uh, twice a month so it's not that much but it will highlight some of the new resources that are coming out. And then we'll put together an archive of this discussion um, with all the links that were shared because there were lots of great ideas and links and resources that were shared just within the course of this discussion today too. So. Um, but we're at close, so I just want to thank everybody so much for being here today and for taking the time and contributing your good thinking and your support and your, um, you know, best wishes to everybody for this work going forward because we're all in this together. So, all right. Have a good night, everyone. Really appreciate it.